All right, let's, uh, let's cut through the fluff as much as we can tonight and, and talk about things that really matter, things that we need to hear about. We, we all need and we want life. In the words of Ernst Becker, who was a uh, cultural anthropologist, mid-20th century, died in the 1970s, we have, quote, an excruciating inner yearning for life and self-expression. It's just a fact of being human. It's a fact of being human. That many human enterprises, if we look around us, that whether they be political or social or economic, um, are taken up with the aim of meeting this need that we have for life and for growing life and, and deepening life. To put it shortly or succinctly, these are attempts, in a way, at salvation, at lifting us beyond the limitations that we know far too well about our own being, about who we are, and the way that we interface with the scary world around us. The, uh, the, the historian Jacques Barzun describes the mission of the whole romantic enterprise as being conceived in the light of, quote, a great contradiction concerning man. The contrast between man's greatness and man's wretchedness, man's power and man's misery. So there, there you have it. We long for life and for glory and for greatness. We, we long for these things deeply. But if we're honest, we, we have to grapple with our inability to, pres- to actually produce these things in our own way. And, and history bears this out. Um, these failed attempts at meeting this deep longing. So there is, of course, a- another way to life than this way. And it's what we celebrate in the church, actually. In fact, while all of history um, is the record of humans seeking salvation and immortality in some sense on their own, the church has been formed as a kind of counter-society, a covert counter-society that reveals the God-givenness of the very gift that we're also painfully seeking in lots of different ways. We'll unpack this a bit more for our lives tonight. Uh, but first, I want to I look at um, the gospel reading, where, we, we, where we'll be in the scriptures. In Luke 4, Jesus picks up the scroll. He's in the synagogue of Nazareth, his hometown. These guys would have known him as the little chap that grew up with the carpenters um, in town. And he picks up the scroll, and he reads from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. We read from Isaiah 61 as well tonight, verses 1 through 4. And as he finishes, he sits down... And sits down, that was the custom of the speakers in the synagogue in that day, and he says these words, which are actually really, really, really radical words. He says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So to get this, it takes us way back for a moment. Um... You know how you often hear, and this is good advice, that if you want to know anything about Christianity, if you want to know anything about the Christian faith, that you need to turn and look at Jesus. Look at Jesus, because he is, in many ways, the summation of Christianity. And I would commend that to you, especially if you're here tonight as somebody who's just seeking after God and not really sure where to find him. I would commend that advice to you, to look at Jesus. Or even if you're here tonight and you're thinking, you know, I I identify as a Christian, but... Man, it's been a long time since I've known or felt or experienced the presence or the love of God in my life. If you're in either of those categories, I would commend this to you, to look to Jesus, that this is a place that we are to look 
to find out the core of, who, of what the Christian faith is. It's excellent advice. But um, it's also slightly more complicated than that. If you want to know anything about Christianity, look at Jesus. That is true. But if you want to know anything about Jesus, if you want to understand Jesus more fully, you have to begin to look at the Old Testament. So that's true too. So look at Jesus. But this passage, when he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, what he's saying is actually to understand me, to understand what I came to do and to bring and to inaugurate in the world my significance. You've got to go back and you've got to look more deeply at the story that I am fulfilling. And that takes us then back into the world of Israel, this special people, and their view of the world and of God. And in short, that view, and we've been looking at this view in various ways throughout Lent, was that God actually made the world. God made everything that we see. So look around you. Now, I have to say that I've had worshipful experiences this week in looking at trees. I don't know if you have, but we have an apricot tree in our yard, and on that day that it got into the 80s, Like, all the buds on the tree just decided, we're going to come out and play today. And it was just beautiful. This white, you know, these white trees. If you drive down Commonwealth Avenue, as I did to get from the office to here this afternoon, you see the magnolia trees just out in full bloom, and it's gorgeous. Everything that we see, these trees that are beautiful, sunsets, waterfalls, oceans, you and me, human humankind, all of these things have been made by God. The question that we have to ask as humans is, where did all this come from? And that question of origins, what is the origin of all things, is one of the great questions that plagues humanity, one of the questions that's always asked and discussed. Well, Israel had an answer to that question. And the question was that they came from the God who made them all, made everything that we see. And that's what, obviously, in the church that we believe too. And that also, Israel believed that as the maker of all things, God was also the absolute king over all. He ruled over everything. He was the ruler. The problem was that we didn't really like to be ruled over. And that's just as true today as it was back in the Garden of Eden. So Adam and Eve turned away from God in the Garden. And we tend to follow their example. And that introduced a whole lot of complexity and, if I can use the term, messed upness into the world. A whole lot. And we see that today in broken relationships. We see it in violence. We see it in um, exploitation and oppression and cancer and a sense of futility and guilt and shame and sickness and sorrow and a whole host of other things, and the list could go on and on. And all of these things frustrate us at some deep and basic level. That longing for life that I introduced at the beginning, and that longing for glory, a longing is a longing that Israel and we could explain by pointing back to creation, pointing back to what we were made for. But the futility and the frustration, that's the result of our own rebellion or running another way. We call that sin in the church. But basically it means that usurping God's authority, like running away from him, doing our own thing. That's what starts to create the great contradiction that Barzun, the historian, wrote about that the Romantics understood so well. And that really, if we're honest, we all understand also. This sense of, man, I was made for something more, but ah, it's so elusive. I can't quite come up with it. So the question is, in light of that contradiction or in light of that tension, what are we going to do about it? What do we do about this? One response is that we build a tower. Okay, so I don't mean that we literally build a tower, but I'm referencing here back to Genesis 11 and the story of the Tower of Babel and what 
humankind does is they gather together, they speak one language, they say, let's put our efforts together and let's try to find security and significance outside of our maker. Let's just build a tower and we'll live on forever in this this great monument to our greatness. So they do. They build this tower or they get a degree or they get three degrees or they climb high in Wall Street or enter politics or take up some worthy cause or whatever. That's one response to this tension that we all feel. And it's really attractive and it's a road that's easily taken for all of us. But there's another response to this and it's the response that we see in Israel. It's a response that said, you know, let's let the king bring us life. Let's let the king actually do this work of giving us what we deeply desire and long for. And that's actually just what the king, what God had promised to do and what he wanted to do. Why? Why did he want to do this? Because he loved the world that he had made. Very good. Of course, the problem for Israel was that she just kept trying to get life and salvation and immortality just like everybody else around her. These other nations that didn't have the Lord. She kept trying to build the tower. So eventually she wound up just as depressed and just as frustrated and just as um, tragic as everyone else. So here we enter now into Isaiah 61. Israel in captivity. She's offended the God who chose her. But actually even there in captivity, even there... God sends word through his prophets that he would bring about a day of blessing. That he would bring about a day when those frustrations and those senses of futility and that brokenness that we all experience and feel would actually be taken away. That he would come again and that through an anointed one, through a a spirit-filled servant, one who had been anointed by God, he would establish his reign and his rule. And in doing so, as he promised to Abraham long ago that he would bring blessing to all the world, all in you, Abraham, all the nations will be blessed. And we read about that worldwide blessing even earlier in the prophet Isaiah in chapter 49 when, he, when God says that his servant would be a light for the nations and that my salvation would reach to the end of the earth. My salvation, salvation, that's the word that we use for rescue and for life. That's actually what we're all really looking for, what we're all trying to find in all the efforts and the rat race that we pursue in all kinds of different ways. So how is God going to bring that about? And why? One thing we can be assured of is that exiled Israel was in no shape or state to merit this message of coming salvation. They weren't in any place to say, God, you know, we, you know, we, we kind of made a deal and we've held up our end of the bargain and so you need to follow through. No, they were in quite the opposite place as we've looked at over the last couple of weeks together. But God says that he would act not because Israel was so worthy, but because simply or so radiant in her holiness or her faithfulness, but because he loved her. There was no deeper cause of his initiating salvation than the cause of his love. And that love wasn't a love that she had earned or merited or was even worthy of in any way in her state. But God says, because I love you, I'm going to bring this about. I'm going to bring about the day when my rule will have its way and there will be blessing and abundance and peace and 
and all the things that you long for are going to come about. That's the testimony that Israel gives to us in her broken state, that God will be the one to bless. God will be the one to bless. For God so loved the world that he gave. So what does God's love for the world long for? What is it that's at the heart of God? I want to suggest to you that in Isaiah 61, that Jesus again in the synagogue of Nazareth picks up and reads that there are two really important things about the story of God and his people that say something deeply to us about God's heart, even for us today. One thing that's alluded to in this passage that Jesus picks up, he says, you know, he sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. We think back in the story of God in Israel and we think to this story, this great story of deliverance and of rescue, of God coming to set his people free from slavery in the time of the Exodus when he comes and he rescues Israel from this this idol false king Pharaoh. One of the things that God loves for his people, and this means just as much to me and to you today as it did to Israel back then, is he loves for his people and longs for his people to be free, to be free to be alive and to flourish and to fulfill the destiny for which we were created as his image bearers. God longs for us to know this kind of freedom. That's at the heart of who God is for his creation. The other major echo in this text in Isaiah 61 that Jesus picks up and reads in Luke 4 is the echo of Jubilee from Leviticus 25. And Jubilee was this legislation in Israel that at the 50th year, God, that they would set people free from bondage, that they would release people from their debts, that there would be a kind of communal reset button on the land, and that everything would be put back to right that had been messed up and mucked up over the intervening 50 years. People getting into debt, people lying to one another, people cheating, people stealing, and everything getting out of whack, and the rich getting richer, and the poor getting poorer, boom. In the 50th year, Jubilee would come and there'd be a reset. And all of that brokenness that they experienced in their life, The brokenness socially, the brokenness economically, the brokenness politically, the brokenness spiritually, all of that brokenness would be restored back to wholeness again. So we see that God is a God who longs to bring about restoration to the broken. He longs, as one of the prophets says, to restore the years that the locusts have eaten. He wants to turn, as we go on in Isaiah 61, mourning into gladness, sorrow into joy, and despair into hope. He's a God who loves to restore and to release. And both of these things are deeply implanted in the text that Jesus stands up to read in the synagogue in Nazareth at the beginning of his his ministry. Do you sometimes feel enslaved? Whether it's to certain kinds of a sense of your vocation that you have to fulfill or certain even perhaps standards that you've put on your own life? Do you sometimes feel enslaved? Perhaps maybe it's to just habits that you can't break in your life. Sometimes feel like you're just kind of constricted and and enslaved. Do you ever feel broken? You know, maybe you walked in here tonight thinking, man, the trees really are beautiful, but it ain't beautiful on the inside right now for me. I just feel really torn up. I'm not sure I know which way's up. I'm not sure I know which way to think about the world or life or even God. And you just kind of stumble in here because it's out of a habit that you come to worship. Do you hear this reality? 
that God is a God who loves to release the captives. He's a God who loves to set us free. He's a God who loves to restore the broken. He's a God who loves to restore the things in our lives that we think we've messed up beyond what we could ever fix. God is a God who loves to come in and to restore those things. So now do you begin to see perhaps just a little bit more of the magnitude of what happens when Jesus stands up in the synagogue in Nazareth that one day and starts to read this passage from Isaiah 61, a passage that communicates the deep, deep, world-contradicting kind of covert society hope that Israel had always had, that the way that this ultimate longing in our hearts would actually come to be fulfilled is through the God of Israel stepping into the world and setting people free and restoring us from our places of brokenness. And Jesus is saying, he's doing it in me. He's doing that through me. Today. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I'm the answer to the hope. It had been pretty quiet in Israel for about 400 years. It had gone quite silent in their oppression and living as a a, a conquered people under Roman rule in that day. And Jesus comes into the synagogue in his hometown and he says, this longing that you have to find life again from the Father, from your God, is now being fulfilled in me and through me. You long for freedom and you long for restoration. These longings that you have are fulfilled in me, the Spirit-anointed servant of God. And it's not just for you, Israel. It's for everybody, as the prophets had pointed to. And then as Jesus goes on in this passage to talk about the fact that Zarephath the widow and Naaman the leper were both the ones that the prophets Elijah and Elisha were sent to to bring life to, to bring restoration to the leper. To bring provision and food to the widow in a time of famine. It's not just a hope for Israel. It's a a hope of Israel for the world. It's a hope for the world. A hope for each one of us. A long-awaited hope. So here's the deal. That we can try to fill this thing with all kinds of other stuff. We can run after all kinds of other things in our lives. We can keep building our towers. But I promise you that if we do, if we keep building our towers, this will actually only lead to more and more enslavement and to more and more brokenness in our lives. Or we can jump into this story of Israel, of the one God who made everything for his people, who made everything that we see, everything that we love, and who rules over everything, and who longs to give life to the world. That's the message of God's yes. We read in 2 Corinthians tonight that all of God's promises find their yes in Jesus. The biggest and the most cosmic of these promises was the promise that in Abraham, all of the world would be blessed. And there in Nazareth, Jesus was saying, this blessing, this worldwide blessing, this longing that every human heart has for something beyond what we find and experience in the world that we know had come to be through and in him because of the love of the father who sent him to a world that was enslaved and to a world that was broken this is what he brings and that bringing of release and bringing of restoration it actually didn't come like everybody thought it was going to come it didn't come by a military might a ruling and a conquering but it actually came it actually came 
in this way, in that the one, the broken one, the one who was broken, to fix our brokenness, and the one who was enslaved, who was caught, to set us free. Talking about the cross and the resurrection, that there Jesus accomplishes for us the release. He accomplishes for us the restoration. He accomplishes for us the victory over the things that torment us and that cause the futility and the frustration and ultimately over sin and death. And he offers that to you and to me tonight for free, just to come. To come and to receive the love that God has for us in him. To come and to say, look, Lord, I'm not going to keep building my tower in my own way. I'm going to lay that down. I'm going to turn a different way. And I'm just going to embrace this gift against all of the wisdom of the world that says, I've got to go find it in this place, in this place, in this place. And you can come tonight and you can come and receive that love, even if you walked in here completely messed up and completely confused and completely jaded. God stands there in Christ and says yes to you and to me. And he says, Come and find release. Come and find restoration.